Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live, on tape, from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, an astrophysicist at Ohio State University. He hosts the Ask a Spaceman podcast and space radio and is the author of the new book, Your Place in the Universe. Hello and welcome, Paul M. Sutter. Hey, how's it going? Very well. Thank you for coming by here. Oh, thanks for having me in this very partially completed building. Yeah, it's still got that new building smell. Yeah, I can smell it all over. <laughs> I have a he- little headache, actually. Yeah, mm, yeah that's probably the uh, the uh, the cancerous materials. Yeah, yeah, there's all the signs everywhere. They're warning me, and now I'm feeling it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of, I don't know if they do this in Ohio. We have a thing here. You can just sort of see the half-baked government stuff at work where you walk into places of business, and they just have a sign that says, FYI, we legally have to let you know there's stuff in here that causes cancer. Right. In Ohio, we just get cancer. <laughs> We just we just assume, you know, we're living in cancer and it's just going to happen. Look, I was going to go to Starbucks anyway, and you're not telling me what the cancer thing is. So this is right. not real useful information. You're just planting fear inside of me. I'd rather live in uh, in the bliss of ignorance. Yeah, which describes the state of Ohio perfectly. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> uh, which is your, the state of where you uh, were born and raised and where you reside and work. And here's a question. You are a teacher at Ohio State University. That is not a question. Here's the question part okay, of the question. Okay. Why aren't you at school? Well, oh, uh, we're out. We're done. Already? Yes. Yeah, it's a short May. semester. Yeah, yeah. We have short semesters. Okay. I don't know. So, no, now it's cool. so now you get to Gallivan. Because I, all I know about Ohio State, frankly, it, oh, I dated, I dated a girl who went there, come to think of it. Oh, congratulations. I was there when it was great. Yeah, thank you uh, for a while there. I was there when Coop got fired. Okay. He couldn't beat Michigan, so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how it goes. That's all I that's know. That's how it goes. I walked around for a week, and when people said, Coop, I went, can't beat Michigan, I literally don't even know what his full name is. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He right. Does, that is his full name. <laughs> right. So uh, I, I, I knew her. She went to class occasionally, but when I think of Ohio State, I think of uh, athletics primarily. Oh, of course. And I don't think of them going to class either, so I'm wondering if there actually are classes going Not on. really. Uh-huh. Like, the semester is over, but yeah. really, it's just, it's a fiction on a piece of paper. It's a state of mind. Let me ask you, about how long have you been, uh, can I ask how old you are? I'm 36. Okay, and how long have you been um, working in academia? For basically my entire life. Okay, great. I was hoping you were going to say that. Do you notice, I'm about five years older than you, do you feel like young people today in a college setting are different than we were? Uh, back in my day, That's things were at. better. Mm. But, but I mean, they I were the worse, kids... which made it better. I rem- yeah, exactly. <laughs> things were so bad, which, were, which was what was so got good character. about them. Yeah, yeah. See, I remember the kids that I went to college with uh, in the early 2000s being terrible in their own right. Well, yeah, and, and most of my students are terrible. <laughs> so, you know, in that respect, nothing's changed. Uh-huh. But do you find, um, specifically, I guess what I'm talking about is we hear a lot about the rise of, this isn't wouldn't come up so much in your line of work, I guess, but PC culture and uh, trigger warnings and stuff like that. Do you f- Have you seen any signs that we've gone from coddling our children in a loving, nurturing sort of way to 
coddling our children in a way that's not going to prepare them for a life on planet Earth as an adult. I think in the college environment, the academic environment, we've become much more aware, like extremely aware to a degree we've never been before, of what are the proper boundaries between a professor and their students on what is that relationship? Because that is such a huge power imbalance between a professor and their students. And then even a professor and grad students or a professor and postdocs or senior faculty with junior faculty. And given those extreme power imbalances and how even unintentional or unconscious ways of communicating or behaving can drastically affect outcomes and expectations. And I think this is a very, very necessary conversation to have and to just be very introspective about what kind of culture are we creating in an academic environment where we want the students to learn and grow and succeed. And that's it. And what are some barriers we're putting in front of them that we're not even aware we're putting in front of them? And this is a big problem uh, or a big issue that needs to be discussed, especially in the physical sciences that are that are male-dominated professions. And when there's young female students coming in or graduate students or postdocs, and it's a largely you know, 60, 70, 80% men in the department, what are some relationships or what are some modes of communicating or modes of behavior that we're not necessarily aware of, that we didn't think of, that are harming or pre- potentially preventing some absolute geniuses from succeeding in the field? And so just having that conversation, just having that level of awareness is a massive first step. Okay. If I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, what we're doing, what's happening in academia as in the world at large is we're taking stock of things that we're doing and we're talking to the man in the mirror, et cetera, et cetera. And we're making lots of really positive, long overdue changes. There are certain isolated pockets of people who are asking for and maybe in some cases receiving insane things that pop up on a news feed and when that's what we see because they are the remarkable outliers. They're very visible. Yeah, people tend to go, well, that's college students nowadays and and both sides of the of our divide nowadays obviously are inclined to you don't hear about the the rank and file if you're a liberal person, conservative person who has relatively moderate ideas about the way the world should work, they have the you know what pops on their news feed is the person who's holding a gun outside of an abortion clinic right who doesn't represent that side either right so basically what you're saying is the kids are all right kids are all right you do feel that way i mean they're still terrible but they're all right they're terrible in all the right ways exactly okay good well i'm glad to hear that all right well let me talk to you about your book which is your place in the universe understanding our big messy existence um, I feel like I am the target demographic for this. Good to know. Because you have a big, messy existence? Uh, no, I've gotten much neater as I've gotten older because I'm incredibly dumb when it comes to the sorts of things that you're talking well, about. Well, so is everybody. No, I'm real. Like, I was ineligible for high school athletics, dumb, at science and math. I don't even know what the E stands for in STEM. Engineering. Engineering. What's the T? Technology. Yeah, that one I should have guessed. Okay. Okay. And the S is? Science. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, just, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to make sure there was at least one in there. Right, 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 right. So you're basically, is it fair to say your book is sort of the universe for dummies? 
It's the universe for curious. Okay. Well, I'm curious. Um, and that's all you need. Yeah. Here, let me start with a really dumb question. Uh, this is probably, hopefully, the dumbest one I've got for you today. What is an astrophysicist? An astrophysicist is a scientist who tries to figure out how stuff in space works. Okay, and how is the way stuff in space works different from the way stuff on Earth works? Because is it, or is it not true that we are also in space? Oh, we are indeed in space. We have a nice security blanket around yeah. us. It's called the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But actually, one of the themes in the book is that how, throughout most of human history, we assume, many, many cultures assume, that the rules of life down here on Earth were different than the rules up in the heavens or up in the sky. They were just, just different. Mm -hmm. And we very painfully and slowly learned that, no, the physics that operates down here on Earth, on the surface of the Earth, is exactly the same all across the universe. And that's actually a very powerful insight that's led us to to our modern understanding of, of the universe. There is actually a universal language. It's easy to see how people came to the conclusion, all the dumb conclusions that people came to, based on the available evidence that based they on, had. So they're very smart conclusions, based on what they know. That's right. It's a little bit of the, what is it, the three blind men touching the elephant thing? Yeah, one's like got the tail, and one's got the, the ear, right. and, the, and they all come to different conclusions. And they're all reasonable conclusions based on their available exactly. evidence. Exactly, which is the exact same game we're still playing. Yeah, yeah. That is that's a it's that it, metaphor is more and more relevant every day. So you often correct me if I'm wrong. Talk about the universe as a story. Yes. Okay. Why do you find that a helpful way to think about and talk about the universe? One, I'm pretty sure we all like stories. Yeah, stories are great. Mm -hmm. And our universe, the evolution of our universe, just the fact that our universe changes with time is an amazing story. And this is something we only discovered within the past hundred years. The universe, the entire universe was different in the past, and it will be different in the future. It's changed states. It's changed character. It's changed makeup. What we see in the universe around us today was not always the case. Okay, explain that to me. I'm kind of, I think, of the opinion, and now I'm starting to feel like I'm about a hundred years out of date with this, that there was the before the Big Bang, and then there was the Big Bang, and then everything more or less settled into place in in cosmic time relatively shortly after the big bang are you telling me that's not the case uh it's 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 a little more nuanced than that yeah. you're not far off mm -hmm. so our universe is 13.77 billion years old i mean how do they know that uh, science <laughs> yeah gender i can get into details if you want but I'll take, that, I'll take it's a solid number yeah. plus or minus 100 million years okay. it's a, it's our best guess right now and what we've discovered, what we discovered 100 years ago, is that our universe is expanding. It's getting bigger every day. Over time, mm -hmm. the distances between galaxies grows on average. So it's not just that the edges are getting bigger, things in relation to one another are getting further Exactly. Away. In fact, the universe has no edge. What do you mean by that? I mean the universe has no edge. So there's no end to it. I'm saying <laughs> that implies to me that the only way I can wrap my brain around that is that the universe is infinite. Then, then essentially, mm -hmm. so it has so so it's infinite and expanding. We don't know if the universe is infinite or not. Mm -hmm. The universe may be finite, even if it's finite, it has no edge and it has no center. It's oh, not that was, expanding. That was, that was my next question. Yeah. There's no center. There's so there's no edge. There's no way of saying where the Milky Way is in relation to. Obviously, we can say in relation to other things. Right. But I guess you need to know the boundaries to be able to fix things to a point. So the Big Bang yeah. happened right here in this room. 
And well, it happened in it, the Andromeda Galaxy, and it happened everywhere in the universe simultaneously. So it wasn't very, very small in the beginning, and then it got here eventually? The universe, the entire universe, so our entire observable universe, which is right now about 90 billion light years across, that's mm-hmm. the limit to what we can see, mm-hmm. 13.77 billion years ago, that all that stuff was crammed into a volume about the size of a peach and yeah. had a temperature of over, over a quadrillion degrees. A peach, they, got, they figured that out? I, I specifically chose that fruit. You can substitute any fruit you want, a pear, I always thought it apple. was I always thought it was like an infinite speck kind of thing. Well, but the, it did have some sort of- And before that, mm-hmm. so this is when the universe was like a second old. Yeah. It was the size of a peach. Okay. When it was a fraction of a second old, it was the size of a grape. When it was a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second old, it was the size of a pine nut. I'm running out of You know, I get you, and smaller and smaller and smaller, but, but eventually you get down to next to nothing, but critically not nothing, obviously. Right, and we don't know what happens at that epoch. Right. In the earliest moments of our universe, we mm-hmm. simply have no physics to understand. We don't know what's going on. We the, don't even the, the, know- At the time or the before, obviously. Right, and we don't even know if the word before makes sense. Because words like before and after come out of our understanding of time and space. They come out of our understanding of physics. And when things are so extreme, like in the very early universe, even our very conception of time and space may break down. And the word before may not even make sense. Okay. I mean, I can feel myself, I can feel my brain hitting the top of my skull, but yeah, okay, there I follow it is, you. There it is. It's a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> that um, or the fumes. So are there any, the Big Bang has to be true. There is no one with a credible opinion who is like, I'm not entirely sold on this whole Big Bang thing. The Big Bang is supported by over a century's worth of observations and evidence. Mm-hmm. You are welcome to come up with your own idea. No, 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 no. But, you know, just in general, anyone in the audience is welcome to come up with their own idea. Uh, good luck fighting through the mountain of evidence. Right. Well, I appreciate science's humility when it comes to that. Yeah. All, all theories in science are always provisional, mm-hmm. always based on the latest data. We're always right. groping at... at, at Parts of the elephant. We could be wrong, but this is where the evidence has, evidence has led us so far. Yeah. It, yeah. Got to say, it's a bad look for those of us who back you when you are wrong. I understand where you're coming from, but the people who were already skeptical about you, they tend to find that when one bit of stuff that you thought was true turned out to not be true, that that casts a long shadow on everything. Yeah, and to me, that that points to a problem in science communication itself, that we're not really communicating what science is really all about. Well, the problem is, okay, you're only, I mean, you're talking to college kids. I know you, you, you I appreciate and respect what you do, which is reaching a general audience, but it's really starting to seem to me that the general public cannot grasp nuance. And things may be unexplainable if they lean on nuance. And I feel like already the stuff that we're talking about is more nuance. I'm, I'm, it's sad for me to be discovering than I think the general public can wrap their brain around. I think the general public can't uh, appreciate nuance only if we assume that the general public can't appreciate nuance. I can see I mean, how the general it, public, it can be a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy, but people who yell at them loudly enough with a lack of nuance do seem to reach them more effectively. Than... That's always going to be effective yeah. in the short term, but I'm playing a long game. Yeah, that's the nice thing. I, w- I wonder about that. I don't want to make this. I don't know why I keep sort of backsliding into vaguely political stuff here, but it must be nice. Most of us are getting caught up in the day-to-day, what have you, what's going on in the world for someone like yourself who always has this. The big view. The gigantic, the biggest possible view of things. That's got to bring you some some comfort. 
Yeah, I mean, we're just a speck of cosmic dust. Right. Totally yeah. insignificant. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so what we have here on Earth is whatever we make of it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, so explain to me like I'm five. You've already said how big the universe is. Is there any way? I do find occasionally I'm able to explain to my seven-year-old son like how far away the moon is mm-hmm. in a way that mm-hmm. he can wrap his brain around. Can you explain to me how big the universe is in a way that I could possibly understand? No. All right. Let me see it's just big. Here. Just just think of the biggest <laughs> possible thing you uh-huh. can, and mm-hmm. it's bigger than that. Okay. Is it wrong to think of... Because like when I'm trying to picture, I was literally planning on asking you, okay, so we're in a room that's vaguely square. It might be a rectangle. I'm not really sure. So where would Earth be if this room is the is the universe? And you've already explained to me why that uh, you can't answer that question. That's a wrong way of looking at it. But I'm still thinking of space as something that is essentially essentially three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And I wonder when you start to factor in black holes and right. extra dimensions and stuff like that, is it just wrong to think of physical space the way that we as human beings really only can understand physical space? No, it's still cool mm-hmm. to think of physical space as physical space. Yeah. We live in a four-dimensional universe. There's three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. Time, right, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the space in between galaxies grows larger with time. So if you freeze frame the universe at one instant, measure a distance between any two galaxies, then let the universe grow, evolve for a little bit, and then measure the distance between those same two galaxies again, you'll have a bigger distance. So that's, that's space. Right, so that's, um, yeah, very literally. So we're not like getting further from the sun, just galaxies are getting- Yeah, this is a very big, big, big thing. You're talking, we're fixed in a gravitational thing. Exactly. All right, well, that's good to hear. Um. So you discuss in the book our relationship with the universe and how that relationship has changed. I know you touched on that a little bit earlier, but what do you mean what do you mean by how our relationship changed? Yeah, as we began to learn more about the universe and we learned how confusing it is and huge it is and how complex it is and how mysterious it is, this stressed out a lot of people. Over the course of the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and even today, like we're, we cur- we're confronted with these massive cosmic mysteries of forces and energies beyond anything we can possibly harness here on the Earth or even the solar system. And it makes you feel kind of small. It makes you feel kind of insignificant. It makes you feel, you know, a little bit worried. Like, you know, what is our place? Mm-hmm. What is our role? You know, what are we important after all? Are we special? And physicists and scientists and non scientists have grappled with these questions over the course of the past four centuries as we've learned more and more about the universe and more about how big it is and how weird it is and how crazy it is. Okay, I think that there are kind of two kinds of people. There are the people who take some solace. For some reason, I happen to know Jerry Seinfeld often would tell himself one thing. The going got tough with you know Seinfeld and whatever it was going on in his life that I am this meaningless, tiny little speck of dust. And I think, I, want, I may be putting words in his mouth, but I think it was Larry David who was stressed when he would bring mm-hmm. that up, that that made it worse for him for oh. Jerry Seinfeld. That made it better. And this is just sort of a classic way of splitting people in half. I gather you are one of the people who finds some comfort in knowing that, you know, life is but a dream in a sense. I think, actually, I think there's a wonderful paradox here Mm -hmm. where, yes, we're cosmically insignificant, 
And yet, life is incredibly rare in the universe. Right. So there's something special about us, right? We mm -hmm. may be small, but we're special. We're different. Yeah. We're unique. There's, there's, there is something interesting happening here on the Earth right. that isn't happening anywhere else in the universe. That we can- That we know that, of. That, that we're know of. And some people are down on humankind. I gather you and I are of a mind where I think humankind is, is pretty- Incredible. I think, I'm a people, and you know, I like to think highly of myself. Well, I think particularly because you know, there's always the people who are going to tell you why dogs are actually better than human beings because no dog ever started a war, and you know, I understand that, but no dog also ever painted a masterpiece or, or wrote Shakespeare or anything like like that. And I guess it's a two part question: Were you raised in 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 a faith or in a faith based environment? I was. I was raised Roman Catholic, actually. Okay, so same here. All of these things that you study and know about and continue to learn about, how does being, how does that inform your feeling towards, you know, the big question of, you know, is there something designing, driving all of this? Right. Uh, I personally, I keep my own personal faith very, very closely held. Mm -hmm. and, but I do know plenty of scientists and, yeah. and cosmologists and astrophysicists and astronomers who are straight up atheists, yeah. who are deeply devout Christian or Hindu or Muslim or Sikh or Jewish. And, and they all seem to sleep at night right. comfortably. Mm -hmm. They all seem to find comfort in their faith and, and interest in their faith and comfort and interest in their science. Uh, some of them, I'm sure each individual person reconciles it in a different way. Of course. But they all seem to get work done. Yeah. We all seem to get along. Mm -hmm. And so I personally believe there's only a conflict between faith and science if you want there to be one. Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Do you know many people whose opinion of, I think at the end of the day, most people sort of have their, even if they say they're agnostic or whatever, I think most people sort of have their answer in their head as to whether or not they think that there is a higher power. Are you aware of um, or friendly with any scientists who change their opinion on the big question on the basis of things that they'd found out scientifically? I know I've heard of, in, in, I went to a Catholic high school and when I was mm -hmm, taking biology, mm -hmm. I remember hearing about whatever the scientist was that, you know, just looks inside a, a human hand with the skin peeled back and they're just like, I can't wrap my brain around how all this stuff could be there working like it does mm -hmm. without something having designed that. That's that that's that person's right. answer. And I'm willing to bet that person came with faith to that situation. Right. Are you aware of people who flip-flopped on the basis of things they've learned scientifically? Not personally, but I'm sure it's happened. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I guess it's not all that common. It's it's either not that common or we just don't talk about it because we're busy you know, yeah, doing all the doing science the, stuff. Doing the science stuff, right, sure. Um, <clears throat> how does... Okay, do you... I'm going to ask you if you think that there's life beyond life on Earth out there in the universe and the stock answer, the easy answer is, um, well, there's just so much stuff out there it would seem like a pretty strong likelihood is that would you agree with that answer as a simple answer that that's a pretty straightforward that's a valid answer okay the, the real answer is we have no idea right so do you think your work how does your work inform that's the best answer i could possibly come up with that's the limits of my science you have a lot more science than i do can you give a more nuanced detailed answer to that question yeah this is actually work? a really really tough question okay. because if we're going to say, okay, are we absolutely unique and singular in the universe? Like, this is the, of, of the 
hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy and the two trillion galaxies in the observable universe is the one and only time life or even intelligent life has appeared anywhere. That seems like a bit of a stretch. So you're like, okay, if life happened here, then it happened somewhere else. But when it comes to physical processes, when something happens, it tends to happen a lot. Like, it tends to be pretty common just because there's so much stuff out there in the universe. Like, we estimate, we have no firm numbers on this, this is a very rough estimate, the number of Earth-like planets around sun-like stars at just the right distance from the star to have liquid water. Yeah, the Goldilocks. The Goldilocks zone. In our own Milky Way, somewhere around 5 billion. Just in the Milky Way. Just in the Milky Way. Right. So if life happened here, why aren't there 5 billion buddies also in the galaxy that we're talking to right now? Mm -hmm. Well, they're not, because we don't see any, we don't hear any, we don't talk to any, we have absolutely no evidence for any life or intelligent life outside of the Earth. Okay, now let me interrupt you for a quick, Second, so we know lots of stuff about things that are far away, even though we've never actually like put a spacecraft down on them. Like, yes. what what percentage of the five billion just in the Milky Way do we have any sense of beyond just knowing that they're there? Oh, of those, that's even an estimate. We have we have only confirmed right directly observed observed around five thousand planets outside of the solar system. Mm-hmm. Most of those are look absolutely nothing like the Earth. Okay. But, so it's a very small handful of Earth-like planets that we know anything about beyond their sort of theoretical... Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Just rough estimates. But you'd think if there's 5 billion intelligent civilizations running around at the same time, and they all have radios, and they all have lasers, and they're all blowing things up, and they're just doing whatever, maybe we should have heard from them by now? Maybe we should have seen something by now? Yeah. But we, we got nothing. Mm-hmm. We got nothing. Absolutely no signal, no sign of any life or intelligent life outside the Earth. So, obviously, there aren't five billion intelligent species out there, and there's at least one, but how many? We right. don't know. Yeah. Well, right. Well, it might turn out that when you get smart enough to send, um, you know, radio signals into outer space, that you're nearing the end of the lifespan of your yeah and so, of so, your you, species. so you so start you to the, answer the fourth the, dimension this is, this is called the fermi paradox by mm-hmm. the way uh you you have to start inventing scenarios of okay if life is going to be common yeah what stops intelligent life from flourishing and colonizing a galaxy for right. example i know this isn't your line of work exactly but what do you think is the the trick i know this is a very huge question i'm asking you but the trick of of life starting because it doesn't make logical sense we can understand how i mean i guess the big bang bang doesn't make logical sense why was it necessary why is any of this here why but are it's we here, man? just such a critical thing for a for, for a rock to become a frog there just doesn't seem there's like a, a lot of steps between I, I, rock and frog right like, there's, there's the, like a billion the years like we got, okay <laughs> but it just seems so um and 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 i guess that's why i'm asking because like you're saying it seems like if this is a thing that happens when planets are in that Goldilocks zone that it when you got all the right conditions but what do you do you know anything more than I do about the mechanism by which not life could become life right this is called abiogenesis Uh you know the generate genesis of life out of non-living structures Mm -hmm. and you know there's there's a couple I I believe and this is pushing pretty far outside my field so I'll put a lot of caveats out there and encourage uh, listeners to do their own research and read up on this um, and listen to someone who actually knows what they're talking about sure uh 
as far as I'm aware, there's there's two very compelling theories. One is in that life originated in like intertidal zones and in tidal pools. That this had the right mixture of of elements, the right mixture of of chemistry that you could start to get things like membranes. You can start to get self-reproducing strands of, of DNA or RNA. And from there, the machinery slowly built up to generate life. Uh, or right life as we would recognize it. The other very compelling idea is that life somehow seeded in the hydrothermal vents in the deepness of the ocean. Where this was not powered by sunlight, but but it's powered by 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 sulfur and you know these volcanic vents that are happening uh deep in the ocean and again there's just the right mix of chemistry the right you know je ne sais quoi of right. of, of, it, of it is the je ne sais quoi we always kind of come back to right right uh, cuz we don't know the like this is a very difficult problem but mm-hmm. there's very capable scientists that are trying to crack this problem that would be a good one cuz i feel like we kind of kid ourselves into thinking that we can understand it and here's the reason why because like if you're a kid and you've ever left like a gross pail of water in your behind your parents garage or something and came back to find things living in it I think we start to think, well, yeah, I, I get it. You just kind of put the right goo together and it kind of happens. But which obviously there was a lot of life already in that. Right. That exactly. Pale when you left it. In abiogenesis, it. this involves itself a lot of steps of going from just simple, simple molecules that are able to replicate on their own mm-hmm. to combining in certain interesting ways. Okay. And one of the big questions we have, and this is why one of the reasons we're so interested in Mars, is that three and a half billion years ago, Mars had liquid water oceans. It had blue skies and white fluffy clouds. It was a nice place on Mars. It looked a lot like the Earth. Now, three billion years ago, Mars dried up. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Uh, we're pretty sure it's because Mars is smaller than the Earth, and its core cooled down. And when its core cooled down, it shut off its magnetic field. And the magnetic field actually is a force field around the Earth or around planets that prevents high-energy particles from slamming into our atmosphere. They, okay. just, they just bounce off of our force field. Mars lost its force field, and its atmosphere got stripped away, and the oceans evaporated. Gotcha, and it just started getting pummeled. Exactly. And so we're curious. We're hunting for signs of life, either present existing life or past life on Mars, because three billion years ago, it looked a lot like the Earth. Mm -hmm. Life got started here. Did life get started on Mars? We don't know. So tell me about, I'll confess my total ignorance to uh, NASA's insight. Yeah. Is that that a thing? Insight. It's a thing. It's currently happening? Happening right now. Okay. They are on a mission to study the interior of Mars. This is exactly what you're talking about. Yes. It's not uh, a hunt for life probe. Mm -hmm. That's that's coming up soon. That's the Mars 2020 rover, which Mm -hmm. is coming up next. Uh, The InSight rover is doing a few things. One, it has a seismographer. On it, yeah, and it's trying. It's measuring Mars quakes, mm-hmm. ah, and indeed. it also has a temperature probe that is sunk down into the soil. What Insight is trying to do is trying to understand the inside of Mars to figure out what it's made of, what its structure is. From there, we can figure out how quickly it cooled off, how this might have affected any potential life on the surface. Just trying to figure out the evolution of the red planet versus the the blue one. I think I know that it is 
a pipe dream to think that humankind in any substantial way is going to just pick up stakes and move itself to Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, am I right or wrong? It's not impossible, but you're right. It's incredibly improbable. Yeah. We, we're certainly going to visit Mars yeah, probably right. by the end of the century. Like that's, that's, you can see like the, the chain of technology that we need to develop in order to do that. And you're like, yeah, we just need to spend a, you know, a bajillion dollars and we can make this happen. Yeah. But so having like, any other better use for that. Yeah, you know, we can argue, especially if it's private money, which is really exciting about yes. the latest uh, the latest developments in the space race and space development is a lot of it is funded by private industry. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, if you've got a billion dollars and you want to send some people to Mars, then, you know, more power to you. Uh, but colonies on Mars and permanent human habitation on Mars, that's a whole different ballgame in terms of difficulty level. Not impossible. But, you know, are you going to have to spend a hundred times the entire wealth of the the whole entire world over the course of a century in order to fund something like that? Like, it just becomes radically infeasible very quickly. Well, also, isn't it just uh, anything is, you know, I think science has done so many amazing things. I'd never count them out in any regard. But just the human body doesn't seem like the human body evolved to exist on earth and we sent that one guy up into space and he was like you could almost see him up there for a year and he was on a genetic level different when he came back when he came back basically no the human body is not friendly when it comes to low gravity environments Mm -hmm. we see this on the space station any even any trip to mars like a a, one mission to mars is going to last about two years because of the way the orbits have to align and just that, just two years in low gravity environments, your bones start to get thinner, your heart gets smaller, your blood vessels shrink, uh, you start to get weird vision problems, your, your sinuses don't drain. Like, it's just like we evolved here in Earth's gravity mm-hmm. and we quickly adapt. When we go to a low gravity environment, our body almost immediately starts changing because it doesn't have to work as hard to fight gravity. So it's not going to waste all that energy, which makes it really, really hard to come back. Yeah, much less to procreate and, you know, give birth to and raise babies. Yeah, we don't even know if, say, spines are able to grow straight in a low gravity environment. Right. Can you explain to me why it's so hard? I feel like everything gets you know, bigger, faster, cheaper with uh, technological advances in time. Why is it so hard for us to go back to the moon if we were able to do it in the 60s with like a a Jiffy Pop container? Yeah, we went to the moon in the 60s with the Saturn V rocket, which was the most powerful rocket ever built. Mm -hmm. You know, depending on how you define the word powerful, but it, it it was a big bad rocket. Yeah. And it was ungodly expensive. Like, we spent a lot of money on that thing, on the Apollo missions. And when they were done, we're like, okay, now what? I guess we don't need that anymore. So then we designed the shuttle. And the shuttle, you know, it was a pretty impressive spacecraft, but it just wasn't powerful enough to go to the moon. It had a different mission, a different mission profile. It was, it was used for different things. And now we're, even if, like, right now we decide, you know what, let's go to the moon tomorrow, we do not have a rocket that's powerful enough to send people to the moon or to Mars. We just don't have a big enough one. 
So we got we got to redo it again. Okay. Is there a compelling? I mean, a true. Of course, there's a compelling reason scientifically to go to the moon. I'm sure there's lots of stuff get to be known about moon science. But like, really, if you're ranking like it, the the dollars that you could invest into going into space or doing things in space or just exploring space from here on Earth. Is it what value is there to going to the moon other than, well, we can't let China go there and we don't go there? In terms of scientific return, there are definitely arguments to be made. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't really want to weigh them because it's really hard to put like a value on this. Yeah. If because... you, but if you could make those decisions, would that be a priority to you or would you prioritize other things, things we haven't done before? Can I prioritize making myself rich? Is that allowed? I, I mean, I think you could probably figure out a way to line your pockets. Okay, you... okay, okay. Just as long as we're clear on that. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. fine. Now I'll answer your question. <laughs> um, this is this is a, a continual conundrum yeah. of crude exploration of space and the solar system versus robotic probes versus remote observing with, with telescopes and observatories. Each one has its own pluses and minuses. Each one has its own set of costs and risks and rewards. There is no right answer mm-hmm. because there's a million scientific questions we're trying to answer all at the same time. And some of them might be answered better by a crude mission, yeah. while others might be better served by a robotic mission, while others might be better answered. So it really comes down to which scientific questions do you want answered and how much money you're willing to spend for it. Right, okay, but let me ask the same question a different way. If you wake up tomorrow and see on the cover of your newspaper, because this is a theoretical world where people see newspapers, that, yay, we're for sure going back to the moon. Are you, I mean, of course you're excited about that, but how much of you is going, ah, man, I always kind of wish they would fill in the blank if they were going to really go big. Okay, what I wish we would do. Yeah is spend a lot more money on robotic spacecraft mm-hmm. and just totally drown the solar system in robot probes. Hell yeah. yeah. Let's just colonize it with robots instead. And just a lot of them. Like, and, and experiment more and, and be more uh, risk-taking. And, I mean, we've barely explored Venus. Mm-hmm. The Jupiter, or sorry, Neptune and Uranus, we haven't visited in 40 years. Yeah. The the moons of the outer giants are full of mysteries, full of liquid water, too, actually might be a home for life, mm-hmm. which we, you know, it's a good thing. And, like, there's just so many mysteries out here, and it's, we just need more of it. Okay. Were we always supposed to be saying Uranus, or did we all just agree to change it because it was embarrassing to say I, I Yeah. The original Greek, I believe, is Uranus. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Greeks. Right, it's Greek. So it's a Greek word. It was never going to so, be so, Uranus. Yeah, I... Dude, I know. Because I have this I read. I still say Uranus and people people still giggle. Yeah, I giggle yeah. on the inside every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read, I was in, in preparation for this last night, I read my kid a cat in the hat goes uh-huh. to space book. And literally when I'm reading it to him, I don't know if I want to be the dad who's like, dude, we can't just change it because we all find it embarrassing. But I don't want to stick to the dumb old thing if the old thing was dumb in the first place. Right. That's a pretty good reason. Yeah, if you're if it's say a Greek Uranus. word. Then... I say Uranus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so your your whole thing would be Kind of just like a throw shit against the wall, put a bunch. And when you say colonize the space with robots, you don't mean let's let a bunch of robot civilizations flourish in different planets. You just literally. Oh, let's mean- do that too. Why not? <laughs> okay, great. But you're basically saying we'll just put as much stuff as we can get out there. And if it's unmanned, we can probably get a lot more stuff done. And this is a very scattershot way to yeah. see what we come up yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Speaking of which, the. Uh, correct me on any of this. Osiris Rex reaches the asteroid Bennu to mm-hmm. understand the early 
solar system? Is it something that already happened or, or that is going to happen? Uh, it just reached Bennu uh, a couple okay. weeks ago. What would we... Oh, cool. Uh, so this is a very timely conversation yeah. about a very timeless subject. So what do we wish to know about the early solar system? What do we wish to know about the early solar system? We'd like to know what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to know how the solar system got started. Mm-hmm. We'd like to know what it was like in its youth. Okay. We'd like to know how we got our present population of planets and so how what, they became different. What do we assume the before there were these planets what do we what were they mm-hmm. uh so the solar system formed out of a nebula a cloud of gas and dust mm-hmm. that was just hanging around mind its own business like nebula tend to do yeah until it got disturbed okay and in our particular case we're pretty sure we got disturbed by a nearby supernova explosion okay that sent a shockwave through our nebula and set it into motion started triggering a collapse of that nebula. Once it got disturbed, it became unstable and started falling in on itself and collapsed and started spinning. And little bits and pieces of that nebula congealed to form the planets, Mm -hmm. while most of the stuff piled into the center to become the sun. So the sun is and always has been powered by some one explosion that happened a long time ago. So the sun is powered by nuclear fusion in its core. Yeah. And the collapse of the material that led to high enough pressures and densities in order to ignite nuclear fusion was set off by a nearby supernova. In in our case, it doesn't always have to be a supernova. Mm -hmm. It just happened to be in our case, it was a supernova. Okay. And then uh, New Horizons passing Ultima Thule. Thule. Thank you. Um. The most distant object ever visited by spacecraft. How far away are we talking about here? Far. Great. Uh, number, let four. me see. It's. I think it's 50 million miles, if I'm remembering right. Uh, it's up there. Okay, so That's like, far. Yeah, but how, like, so we were talking about way outside of our solar system, obviously. This is right at the edge. Okay. Uh, it's past Pluto, mm-hmm. so past all the planets. Yeah. But still technically inside the solar system. Okay. Uh, and, uh, what? I mean, how's that going? Oh, it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this, this is amazing. To give you a sense of how far, New Horizons is traveling at 36,000 miles per hour. 36,000 miles per hour. Okay. And it took it 12 years right. to get out to Ultimate Tulane. Right. 12 years at 36,000 miles per hour. Awesome. That's how far away it is. Okay. This is the most, and, and what you're looking at with Ultimate Tulane is one of the leftovers from the formation of the solar system. Little bits of debris left over. And just a bit too far away when when the the goal was good to be, or probably got scattered out. Yeah, probably right. started out life in the inner solar system and got pushed out mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. the planets began to form. And at that point out there, the sun is just kind of a star. It's a it's a star. It's a point of light. It's a painfully bright point of light, but just a point of light. Painfully bright. It still hurts to look. It at, still hurts to look, to look at, at the sun from Pluto. Yes. No kidding. Yes, but it, but it's just a tiny little dot, a sharp dot, like uh-huh. a needle. Mm-hmm. How far away is the next thing that's as bright as the sun? The our, the nearest star to the sun is a star called Proxima Centauri, mm-hmm. which is a very very dim red dwarf star. You can't even see it with the naked eye. Mm-hmm. That thing is four light years away. If New Horizons was aimed at it, yeah, and it's not right, it would take it about uh forty thousand years to reach it. Holy shit. But you're saying that that's not as bright as the sun. Cause no, it's already, no, no. It's, it's already it's, dwarfing. Right. It's only about half the size of our sun. Okay. 
All right, so I won't even ask how far away the nearest sun is because it's clearly incredibly. It's far. a little bit further. Uh, Alpha Centauri is is I believe if I'm remembering right a sun like sun ish like star. Okay, and that's not too too much further away. Okay, a little over four light years. All right, well this is fun. I appreciate you humoring me. We have a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask you to tell me um, everything I need to know about black holes. Everything you need to know about black holes is that they're only scary if you get near one or fall into it. Okay, no, I'm not afraid of black holes. Okay, good to know. Good <laughs> I to just, know. Like, um, okay, like, how do they fit into the the story of all this? I guess the, I'm referring back to you earlier when I was saying that maybe mm-hmm. the way that we conceive of space doesn't make sense because there's nothing that we think of. We think of, you know, you might run into a tree, you might run into water or, or, or the sky or whatever. Black holes don't fit the description of any other phenomenon that we could encounter in our reality remotely yeah when when black holes were first invented i would say were discovered in the mathematics of general relativity uh you know people thought they were they were just this weird artifact like okay haha it shows up in the math but nature doesn't really make black holes oh for real yeah yeah exactly it's just like einstein was like well if this is all true then there would have to be some black holes out there and people just thought that that was some funny noise in what he'd come up with yeah it it, it wasn't even einstein that that first developed the concept of black holes Mm -hmm. it was uh schwarzschild carl schwarzschild that developed like looked poked around the mathematics and said hey there's this thing called black holes and everyone was like eh I don't think so. And right. it turns out nature makes black holes through the collapse of massive stars. Mm-hmm. It has all the right conditions to trigger the formation of a black hole. And yeah. now we have pictures of them. What does it mean to say that we have a picture of a black hole? You have a picture of all the stuff that's just outside. Exactly. And then there's a yet. hole in the middle that's black. Right. Right. And how do you know when you're looking at a black hole that it's that it's a, a like capital B black hole and not just literally a hole where there aren't stars Oh, if it was just a void or a vacuum, yeah. then it wouldn't have any gravitational influence. It wouldn't have so any can, gravity. They can measure the... Yeah, we can literally see stars orbiting around these things. Oh, oh, oh yeah. I got So it's like a galaxy, it's like a solar system without a sun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And where's the science currently on what happens if you go inside one of those? There's just got to be obliteration, right? Yeah, it's always obliteration. Uh, but when it's you not, cross... you, don't, you don't come out on some cool thing on the other side? Uh, unfortunately not, not okay. as far as we know. That's it's... pretty settled? Pretty, I mean, we don't fully understand what happens at the center of a black hole. Mm-hmm. Straight up. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. Question of course, mark. anything would be destroyed going into it anyway. So the, Yeah, the, I mean, there's that. It's that's, irrelevant. That's yeah. academic. But, yeah, yeah we're, we're curious about what, what happens at the center. Mm-hmm. We honestly don't know. That's beyond known physics. Mm-hmm. There are obviously a lot of wild and crazy ideas. But we have no, we got nothing to go on. Okay. Are dark matter and antimatter the same thing? They are not. Okay. Tell me about dark matter. Dark matter is... Uh, a proposed form of matter mm-hmm. that actually makes up most of the stuff in the universe. Most of the mass in our universe is of a form that simply doesn't interact with light. Hence the name dark. A better name for dark matter would be invisible matter. So Just, is there dark matter in this room with us? Probably. It's probably streaming through here, this room right now, but it doesn't interact with light. It doesn't interact with normal matter. It just streams on through. We only know it exists through its influence on gravity. Okay, so so it would just literally be passing through walls, and who cares? Exactly. If it's here or if it's not, is is irrelevant exactly. to our. But existence. our if it wasn't here, our galaxy would have torn itself apart billions of years ago. Okay, so is this a thing? Now you said black holes. It was just sort of a thing that had to be there for everything to work, and it turns out they're really there. Is black, uh, dark matter? Is what we're talking about now is. Have we figured out a role for it, or is it just still a thing that makes the math right. work? We know of dark matter through its role. 
Okay, so what which we, is it, it's it, so we get this through observation. So when we look at galaxies mm-hmm. and we look at how fast the stars are going in a galaxy, you know, orbiting around the center, and you add up all the hot, glowy stuff, all the stars and nebulas, and, you know, just all the stuff. There's not enough stuff in there to keep a galaxy gravitationally bound with the stars going that fast. It should have ripped itself apart. Okay. There has to be more stuff in there that isn't glowing. Okay. There has to be, it has to be matter that is dark. Uh-huh. And then we do the same thing with galaxy clusters, even larger things. We look at the history of the universe, and we see uh, evidence for dark matter everywhere. We don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but we know what it's doing. Yeah. Okay. This might be an unanswerable question, but to go back to the analogy of the, let's just say that humankind, for all of our intelligence and technology and advances, are the blind man with the elephant. Yep. Would you guess that when all is said and done, we have already scientifically run our hand over the whole side of the animal, or have we touched a tiny little piece of the toenail? I'd say we're... Past the toenail, mm-hmm. or maybe at the kneecap. Okay, where that's that's where there's there's a lot of known mysteries in the universe. Like we don't understand dark matter. Yeah, we don't understand dark energy. We don't understand the earliest moments of the universe. Like there's there's a lot of things we don't understand, mm-hmm. and we're working really hard to try to understand them. But these are this is the the Donald Rumsfeld thing, right? The the known unknowns. Yeah, exactly. Unknown, unknowns, exactly. But she got so mocked for when it's. I mean, it's, it's actually legit. It's of course it's legitimate. There are the things. Like, here's we, a list of things we don't understand, but then there's a bunch of other things we don't who, even know that we don't exactly. understand. Understand them, Which, so you feel like there are there. I mean, more. Who cares about the you know what the tipping point is? But we've got a pretty good handle on the the known unknowns, and there are relatively few unknown unknowns. If you had to guess, sitting here, two thousand nineteen, there's actually quite a few. Mm-hmm. There's long lists of things we don't understand, right? Which is great, job security. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's going to be a lot of stuff. What are you What are you working on currently? So I research a few things. I study the large-scale structure of the universe, so what our universe looks like at its very biggest, mm-hmm. especially its most empty regions, these vast, vast, vast empty regions we call the cosmic voids. Mm-hmm. And I also study the earliest moments of the Big Bang, mm-hmm. and I uh, develop techniques for hunting for the first stars. What does that mean? So like when you go to work, let's just say that you were actually going to you know, a lab, you work in a lab? I work in an office. You work in an office. You go to your office, and after you, you know, check Twitter, and you get to work. So an hour and a half later. Yeah, yeah. studying. Yeah, take a little break to do some work before lunchtime. Looking into cosmic voids, like, how do you do that? Yeah, exactly. So this is taking data. We we take data from, or my particular research takes data from a galaxy survey. So maps of our universe. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, develop algorithms to identify cosmic voids, characterize them, catalog them, and from there try to understand their properties of, of how they operate in the universe. That's good. I'm always happy when people do find things that they love to do and then get to do them, and I gather that's exactly where you're living. Pretty much. Cool, cool, cool. All right, well, thank you for your time. You are Paul Sutter. You are at Paul Matt Sutter. On Twitter, damn you, Paul Sutter, that got there first. Um, Space Radio or Ask a Spaceman podcast? Both. Both. And most importantly, the book, Your Place in the Universe, Understanding Our Big Messy Existence. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for humoring me. Thank you. 